Symbioses, the interactions between two different species, make the world go round. Everything from our agricultural systems to our own gut depends on groups of interacting organisms doing their thing. Our guest today, Dr. Allison Hansen, studies how a common aphid gets its nutrition. It turns out that its entire diet is dependent on a bacterium living inside each and every aphid. But how did it get there? What does it do for the aphid? Let's dive into the big world inside small insects. This is Radio Bio. Don't know much biology. Hi everyone, welcome to Radio Bio. I'm Jeff. I'm Jasper. Today we're joined by Dr. Allison Hansen, professor of entomology at the University of California, Riverside. Hello. Hey, can you uh, tell us a little about a little bit about yourself and uh, what you work on? So I work on insect microbe interactions, and I primarily work with microbes that are specialized inside of these insect cells. And so, but I'm really interested in the microbiome as well with insects. So I have a variety of microbe insect interaction pro- projects, as well as kind of plant pathogen interactions with those microbes. So kind of a diversity of interactions. So how did you get started in uh, why did you decide to study the symbionts and their hosts? That's a great question. Um, well, I just really, I mean, I started out, I really like nature, and so I didn't really know what I wanted to go into, but I was always fascinated by different species interactions since I was little. And so I really liked plants and animals. It was just a very general. And so I started out in forestry, actually, and then really got pulled in forest insect interactions and learning, you know, why, how do trees die and things like that. And then I just got really more sucked into the genetics and the evolution of these systems. And so I actually started out in community ecology more for my master's. And then I just completely transitioned more to the molecular level because I just kept on asking questions of, okay, how does that work? You know, how do they interact? And, right? so, and so what kind of insects and uh, microbes are you specifically focused on? So I like to study the model to study insect microbe interactions. And that's one of the most intimate obligate associations. It's kind of a classic story of symbioses, um, particularly nutritional symbioses. And so these are called hemipteran insects. And so some of these hemipterans feed on sap and so sap is very high in sugar, so it's a very sugar-rich diet, but it's very low in nitrogen, particularly essential amino acids. And so, like you, me, we all need these essentials. We could eat a hamburger, soy, whatever you want, but, you know, insects don't have that option, um, particularly sap-feeding insects. So they have to somehow get these essential amino acids, and so they're able to do this by having this association with these microbes. And so these microbes provide these essential amino acids, provision them so they can feed on this diet that is just so high in sugar, but low in nitrogen. Um, so all sap-feeding insects need this ob- some type of obligate symbiont to provide these nutrients. So that's why it's kind of a classic model. The insect can't survive without it, and insects have diversified through evolutionary time with their symbiont and co-speciated with them. Um, so it's this wonderful evolutionary innovation, this partnership between other domain of life that basically allows them to feed on this diet. So it's kind of an interesting interaction. I'm like, how does this happen? How does this metabolism work together? Mm-hmm. Since they had so many you know, millions of years of evolving together. 
Um, so, Dr. Hansen mentioned obligate symbiosis, which are examples of mutualism, where the symbionts are obligated to be in the interaction to survive. In this case, we're discussing the microbes inside aphids that need the host to survive, and in return, they help the insects get nutrients from their food. And do we know kind of roughly what like proportion of, let's say, the hemipterans have these symbionts? Is it all sap-feeding uh, hemipterans, or is it most of them? Is it only a few of them? For the most part, in general, it's most hemipterans need this if they feed on a sap diet. Hmm. When you include other insects that need obligate symbionts, that's about 10% of insect diversity, which oh, is wow. a pretty big chunk, huge, yeah. considering insects are the most diverse, one of the most diverse animals on the planet. So. Yeah. When she says 10%, this is a huge amount of insects. It's estimated that there are 2 to 30 million species of insects on the planet, which means there are roughly 200,000 to 3 million insects that interact with symbionts. That's a lot. Well, how do these bacteria get into these insects? We asked Dr. Hansen what she thought. Yeah, I mean, there's no direct idea of how it could have been gut and then worked its way in or... Um, whether it was a pathogen or if it was a plant pathogen, then it's going to be drinking, you know, plant sap, and then the pathogen's going to get, sometimes the pathogens go through the salivary glands, actually go through the insect, through the hemolymph, but they're not symbionts quite yet. But there is this interesting intersection where I think some plant pathogens can have that interface between being a symbiont but also a plant pathogen, and that's kind of an area I'm fascinating in. Into. And so once these symbionts are in these things, I mean, they are, that's actually one question is how do they even um, get into the host in terms of um, life cycle? Are they born with these symbionts? Are they passed down? Do they grow with them? So the intimate symbioses I'm talking about, they're maternally transmitted. So mom gives, you know, to offspring. And so it's kind of the same way to think about mitochondria, really, Okay, so the symbionts are maternally transmitted like mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell. But the difference is that as an obligate symbiont, its only function is to benefit the host, and because of that, its genome has retained genes that only serve this purpose. Because they've lost the other ones. When you don't use it, you lose it. It's relaxed kind of selection. Um, so you can really tell what kind of the function is just by reading the genomes you know, of these symbionts because of the way the genomes evolve. So through omics approaches like genome sequencing kind of approaches to look at the microbe sides and then also the host sides and how they interact with these. So we isolate the special cells that hold the symbionts so we can tell um, symbiont specific um, kind of gene expression with the host as well as the symbiont and compare that to other host tissues that don't have the mm -hmm. microbes in it. So you can kind of do a comparison and what are those specialized cells that hold the symbionts? What are those called? They're called bacteriocytes. And where are they found in these uh, hosts? So they are in the bodies, kind of near kind of the gut layers. Um, so not in the gut, but they could be surrounding them in various types of hemipteran insects, for example. So um, kind of in the body, floating in the insect blood, also known as hemolymph. So. Okay. So these symbionts are maternally transmitted and live in these specialized cells in the host and have small genomes whose only purpose is to serve the host. Sometimes in these types of symbiotic relationships, there can be horizontal gene transfer where genetic information can be directly transferred between individuals. 
So we wondered, how do these symbionts use horizontal gene transfer, or do they communicate with their host? So we asked. They actually lost the, some of the genes that allow them to do horizontal gene transfer mm. and to recombine. So it's, they're just constantly losing genes and not getting really any novelty as far as new gene. There's no gain. No. Mm. And so um, in certain insects, they actually have more than one obligate symbiont. So they're not fully replaced in those situations, but they have companion symbionts. And when they sequence the genomes, what some of these scientists that study them find is that they lose certain pathways where the other symbiont retains them. And there's this perfect like puzzle-like complementarity of pathways. It's like really cool like to see that pattern of just complementation of that. So. It's like a symbiosis between the symbionts yeah. uh, within the host that they are also. Right. Of, and it's but, a puzzle of how exactly those symbionts interact and then the host on top of that. So a lot of scientists in the field are just trying to figure out the basic regulation of these you know, different organisms inside of it. It's like a, you know, the Russian doll kind of. Thing. Hey, everybody, don't skip this part. This is huge. These organisms are only losing genes over time, and, these, and the genes that are left are only there to help the host. Once they lose enough genetic information, they get replaced by other symbionts, grooming or paving the way for the next one to fill in the slot. That's so weird. What role does this microbe have in the host, let's say, getting nutrients from, that's missing from sap? How does this microbe kind of um, influence that process? Okay. Um, so primarily in the field, we think the host is in control of this metabolic kind of collaboration. In general, animals cannot produce essential amino acids. We don't have the pathway. So mm-hmm. it would be more like the enzymes are working in reverse. Hmm. It, they, they have the enzymes just to recycle these uh, important essential amino acids into like glutamine or some amino donor. But hmm. we're thinking maybe they work the other way to help. You know, they adapt it this way to produce them, to regulate those end steps. That's so cool. So <laughs> through these different host control mechanisms, it's we're kind of thinking that's what's regulating the system. But then some of my research stumbled on maybe the microbe is doing some aspects of this regulation, especially in stages early in the embryo when it doesn't have this specialized host cell around it. And this might be regulated by small RNAs because it lost pretty much most of its regulatory proteins for bacteria compared to its free-living relatives. So, Okay, so just as a refresher, small RNAs are involved in a whole bunch of regulatory processes and gene expression, and because they're small, they can operate at a fast rate. So going back to mm-hmm. the symbiont world, <laughs> um, it, it's been found in small genomes that some of these actual small RNAs are actually expressed as well. And so it's just, is it noise or is it, is it important? And so that's what my lab is, one project we're trying to figure out if these small RNAs are very important in the regulatory steps of facilitating uh, gene expression. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, so who would you say is driving the evolutionary bus? <laughs> Hmm. That is the that is the question. Um, well, I mean, in the field, the dogma is pretty much the host is in control of this relationship. Um, the genome of the bacteria it's it's being transmitted from mom to offspring, like I said, and so from these events, there's bottlenecking events where only a few cells, you know, inoculate 
into the embryos to be passed on. So, and so from this, it's just, it's selection is not working uh, strong enough in these cases. So it's argued that it's kind of a host restricted microbes Mm -hmm. are, you know, adaptation doesn't really work very much in these systems. So it's, the selective pressure is more on the host than on the symbiont because it's just yeah, essentially the but, hosts that have offspring. But we don't know fully yet of, you know, both sides of mm-hmm. the story. And so I think it's something to consider, though, like, you know, sure, we've been thinking more of the adaptation from the host side mm-hmm. and the control of this kind of domesticated relationship. But maybe we should start to think of these other aspects that uh, maybe there is something going on also on the microbe side, some selfish interests as well or things. So. It's, it's really interesting to me, you keep, keep uh, saying domesticated relationship. Right? I mean, it kind of makes sense. It's almost like these hosts are kind of like potentially kind of even corralling this symbionts uh, and like using them in a way. And yes, it's a mutualism, but you said that their genomes are downsizing to the point where they sometimes are losing the ability to do other things. Right. So like what, what actual evolutionary benefit are these symbionts getting out of this relationship? Yeah, I mean, you can <laughs> argue that, you know, they're becoming... If they can't re- recombine, they're becoming asexual. So it, it's just this kind of homogenization that occurs and limited diversity and adaptability. But I also, you know, small RNAs, are, they can evolve rapidly too from the RNA world of things. So going back to the RNA world when, you know, protein is, you know, not as you know important yet for the regulatory, you know, starting of life, maybe mm-hmm. how did life start? So... Going back to that, right here, you still have the ability to have small RNAs do some type of, maybe they're stepping in more and doing regulatory functions because they can't get new proteins, you know, there's, so it's a little bit harder, slower from that evolutionary process, but mm-hmm. just something to consider. And how does the ecology of the insect hosts come into play? So does let's say, a plant that these insects are living on or the environment they're living in, can that influence this symbiosis in some way? Yeah, and something I'm kind of interested in from my research direction that different plants have different nutrient and defensive compounds. So how do these different, you know, diets that they're feeding on, I mean, it's primarily sugar, but there's other stuff in there, and there's different levels of nutrients, and it varies even on a host, one host plant, so mm-hmm. it can be difficult. Like where they are in the plant, yeah. Yeah, what, what specific parts <laughs> so they So not eating. only just the different species, but different. there's a lot of variation out there. So how does variation in diet affect the regulation of the symbioses? That's mm-hmm. something that I am interested in. So we one grad student just published a study showing that there is a difference in regulation of some key genes that are host genes that are very important in the symbioses transporter and some genes important in recycling ammonia so I think there might be potential host control of a compensatory kind of response metabolic response to try to get more nutrients when they're feeding on a poor nutrient diet so it's almost like it's the host is missing a nutrient and that is actually upregulating something going on in the symbiont so that mm-hmm. it can get something back from the symbiont right that's really cool <laughs> yeah so something we'd like to explore a little bit more uh, and depth, and we're looking at different types of regulation too, because um, we're looking at epigenetics as well. And so we're finding that when they're feeding on different host plants, there's different methylation signatures in these uh, bacteria sites. And so we're interested in finding out if that's linked to differential gene expression, like the fact that they can go out feed on a plant, 
and some signal from the environment nutrients or host plant compound chemical can then turn on switches that can can like change the regulation of that which would be really cool Mm -hmm. and so that's something we're also looking into deeper so it's still like on the fringe i think of is it important or not but that's kind of that genetics field in a lot of Mm -hmm. aspects of what you're studying but could be something interesting as far as adaptation in the natural environment especially since some of these insects are asexual or clonal during parts of their life stage and so genetically they're all the same out there but they can maybe be influenced by epigenetics and have these polyphenisms being in, like um, basically triggered by environmental cues and differentially methylate their genomes, even though they have the same DNA blueprint, but that can then, that's a whole other le- level of regulation. That's like, whew, but it, it's yeah, really it's fascinating, cool. I think. Yeah. But so I, I, I guess my lab, I like to study these weird fringe areas of regulation of epigenetics, small RNAs, like, that sound cool. I don't know. If they, <laughs> but, no, I mean we're finding interesting patterns, so we're we keep on chasing them down. Which I think that's the fun part of being a researcher mm-hmm. of finding, you know, making sense of puzzles. What's real? What's not? Mm-hmm. So this has been so cool to learn about these microbe and insect interactions. What roles do other symbioses play in our world? But the, there's so many cool insect interactions to study, though not just hemipterans, but you know, with gut microbiomes and like, like mosquito stuff, you, you know, like, or bees or like all these very important insects that either important pollinators are important for disease kind of vector. Um, and hemeterans are more important for agricultural reasons. So, you know, all these things are important for basic science and understanding evolution and how it works and symbioses. But uh, on top of that, insects are very important as far as from an economic perspective, they're pests of our crops or mm-hmm. fiber, you know. Pollination. Pollination mm-hmm. also, yeah. Pollination, you know, dying mm-hmm. bees. So no. everyone's heard, I think, about that. Oh. <laughs> and make uh, everybody no, sad. <laughs> yeah, why don't we talk about something happy? <laughs> like aphids. <laughs> so when you're out, uh, let's say, just walking around town or anywhere on a hike or something and you see aphids in a tree do you instantly kind of think of their symbionts or do you look at them as just aphids oh, that's a good question well i mean i'm feel blind most of the time so i'm just trying to see the insect first and then, um i don't know I, I guess i would have to get it and dissect it and not really get into it like that i do think about dissecting insects a lot of the time but yeah that's the only way to really see, like, inside of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, these insects are so small to begin with, so that's the problem. But I wish they were bigger. I wish there was a way to, like, make myself become microscopic and I can, like, <laughs> crawl into them and, like, just collect the material more easily. and like <laughs> Just grab your symbiont and walk Yeah, out. it would be so nice. And <laughs> bit, of a, bit of a Rick Moranis situation. <laughs> Funny, I blew up the aphid. Yeah. <laughs> um. So if you had like infinite funding, if you <laughs> won, if you won the best NSF ever, what? that wouldn't be an infinite funding. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> hypothetical insert <laughs> funding situation here. What would you What would you work on? What would I work on? Yeah. Uh, well, what What project would you take on? Probably my 
the pet projects I have of just understanding more of you know the evolution of these like especially the small RNA aspect I think there's a lot of interesting things to kind of explore a little bit further and also the epigenetic kind of stuff the regulation of that um, so it's NSF that's more like basic science so that's the areas I'd go but I think there's a lot of cool applied kind of projects as well that would help you know agricultural aspects too so that would be a different funding agency yeah (laughs) what's kind of your sum up either favorite thing about your study system or something you wish everyone knew about aphids and symbionts and interactions man that's a hard one my favorite thing well, I think it's unfortunate that people don't like aphids as much as other insects. Um, I think, you know, it's, but I think people should realize that aphids are really awesome. And <laughs> they are agricultural pests, so they're important to study. Um, but, yeah, I mean, they transmit a lot of plant diseases, too. A lot of hemiptrins do. Some are like, like citrus greening with the psyllid. That's like destroying citrus industries around the world. And mm-hmm. so I think there's a, they're really important like economically. Uh, and some people just don't realize because they get buried in under everything else. Like, of course, like we care about human disease, vector diseases. Those are very important too. Mm-hmm. Lots of mosquito microbiome projects. I'm not going to throw the mosquitoes under the bus or anything. <laughs> but. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think. You know, people understand where their food comes from and how important sustainability of agriculture and just, yeah, understanding the importance of plant-eating insects. Mm -hmm. And aphids are one of those, but also they're just really cool insects. They look like just, you know, when people ask about aphids, they're like, are those those things you could smush on my roses? And, (laughs) like, I wish maybe I need to, like, make them more charismatic some way. And I don't really know how to do that. But (laughs) if anyone has ideas or... It's a tough one. Yeah. I mean, you, could, you, you play up the fact that they carry these little yeah, make autonomous little, things little inside cute, of them. You know, there's those little pillow fuzzy microbe animals and mm-hmm. finches now. So maybe like, you know, make little cute pictures of the aphids hugging the, you know, the little microbe or something. Yeah, I'm thinking make a toxoplasma pillow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the next time you see an aphid on your houseplant, just take a moment to marvel at the little universe of autonomous microbes living inside them. This episode of Radio Bio was brought to you by Jasper Toscani Field and Jeff Lauder. Produced by Jackie Shea. Edited by Jasper and Jeff. With artwork by Ann Deep. Radio Bio is produced by graduate students at the University of California, Merced. Support for Radio Bio comes from the Quantitative and Systems Biology Graduate Group, the School of Natural Sciences, and the Graduate Division at UC Merced. You can help support Radio Bio's mission of increasing scientific literacy in California's Central Valley and beyond by donating at giving.ucmerced.edu slash radiobio. Find out more about our mission, events, and podcasts at www.radiobio.net.